0: On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment? Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11, for Dave and Hey, podcast listeners, Ethan Millard and Alex Curie here from the Nightside Project Podcast here at KSL Podcast. Get into Zen Headlines with us on the Nightside Project. Use hashtag Zen Headlines on social media to share stories that make you think, make you smile, spread love, spread joy, all those things. We'll share them on the Nightside Project Podcast, one of the most popular podcasts ever. Nightside is a KSL podcast. Subscribe for free anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: Those are the moments when when it really becomes true and authentic, or not. I mean, that's those are in some ways the only moments that really matter. And and you don't have it's not authentic in those moments. It wasn't ever authentic. It was a technique. It was easy. Uh, It's easy to make nice and smile when everything's going right. When it's not, that's when I think it tests people, and that's when you can tell.
0: He's got a long resume here. I'll cover a couple of them. Chairman of JetBlue Airways, a professor at Stanford. Um, You know, rather than me go through the list, Joel, I'd love for you to maybe tell people a little little bit about being a young CEO and having gone to Harvard and now teaching at Stanford and some of these things, if that's okay. Yeah,
1: I've overcome uh, going to Harvard Business School. I always tell people uh, I've taught at Stanford for 27 years. I've been the chairman of the Board of Overseers at the Hoover Institution. For any of you who know Stanford, you'll, you'll know that Hoover Tower uh, is kind of a landmark here. It's a conservative think tank uh, here on campus. Um, I started Peterson Partners, uh, which is a private equity investment firm. We do venture investing, private equity investing. We do, through a related company, real estate investing for about the last 25 years or so in about several hundred companies. So uh, I've had what's called a cobbled career. <laughs>
0: um, and and how old were you when you became the CEO of of that giant real estate company, Trammell Crow?
1: I was in my late 30s, as I recall.
0: Um, what was that like to to have such a senior position at you know a, a young age for a
1: role that senior? Well, I'd been a, a CFO since I was about 29, so I'd been involved at a at, at kind of in the C-suite. Uh, for a long, long time. And I stepped in as CEO during a time of uh, stress and crisis. Uh, it was always, uh, you know, big, running a big company is is a stressful 24-7 kind of a job. And uh, But I had great partners and a great experience. So it was wonderful.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of things I want to talk about. As I was mentioning earlier, I've, I've heard your name a thousand times since uh, moving down here from Canada and, and lucky to actually cross paths here. Um, but I, where I think I want to start is this new book, the 10 laws of trust. Can you, can you talk about this?
1: Yeah. So I've always been interested in trust. I think it's the most powerful, um, uh, asset that a leader has. Um, I think it's also very fragile. I think it allows you to do things, uh, and grow in ways that you would not otherwise be able to do without a high trust organization allows you to be more innovative uh, to fix problems qu- more quickly, to get the support of people. I think it's, uh, it's a really – I always say that it's the operating system of a life well lived.
0: I love it. Well, can you, can you share with us a couple of laws and maybe a couple stories from the book?
1: Sure. Uh, so I think the, the first law, I think, is a, a really pretty valuable one that everybody would naturally understand, and that is the, the idea of integrity that the leader of a high-trust organization has to have integrity. But I think they don't necessarily understand it the way that I do it. And that is to say that most people substitute the word integrity for honesty. That just means that you you don't lie, cheat, or steal. But really, integrity means, uh, I I think, um, this idea of uh, not having a big gap between what you say and what you do not having a big gap between your values and your behaviors. Think of it a little bit like structural integrity that uh, the engineers talk about where things connect and you can really rely on them and they're grounded to bedrock. And so that kind of integrity, I think, allows people to then trust the leader. And it typically flows from the top of an organization. I think without a leader with integrity, both in their private lives and their public lives, It's hard to build a high-trust organization, Uh, so that'd be one of them. Um, Another one that I think is really important is this notion of showing respect to others. It's hard to build a high-trust organization unless people are respectful of each other, and that means that they're able to have conflict respectfully. They listen to each other without an agenda. Uh, They ventilate issues. Um, They know the names and the backgrounds of people irrespective of their position and station in the organization. So I think um, trust will follow respect. Um, And then I think maybe the third one to mention, uh, because companies suffer from not doing it very well, is communication. Communicating transparently, openly, bad news as well as good news, Uh, sooner than later, fully, completely, lavishly, uh, so that people aren't Uh, communicating by rumor and at the water cooler is a is an important element of building high trust organizations
0: yeah i love it i feel like there's a lot in there um one of the ones maybe to start with is um this idea of listening fully like you know i kind of felt like you were saying like not just listening like not just thinking of our response while we wait for them to finish talking like being present when we listen or um you talked about uh, i think you said listening without an agenda. No, I think that's so easy to say. Why do you think so many of us struggle with it?
1: Well, I think we're we're at the center of our universe. I think we're trying to win an argument. We're trying to impress people. I think we're self-absorbed. And so a lot of times uh, we're just waiting for the noise to stop on the other end of the line so that we can jump in with our own thoughts. We're formulating them as the other party is talking. And I think it's much more effective in building high trust – to just be capturing, just be understanding, making sure that we really fully understood what the other party is saying, and I think as we do that, trust skyrockets.
0: Yeah, uh, can you think of anybody in your life that you feel like really modeled that for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was I have been for 27 years on the board of the Franklin Covey organization, and Stephen Covey actually first wrote and talked about this idea of capturing before you prescribe. You know, uh, <laughs> understanding before you tell people what ought to be done. And I watched him do that in a lot of cases where I knew he had a point of view, but he would wait until uh, people had actually fully described what it was they were um, trying to say and in a way that he could then uh, tell it back to them better than they could have said it themselves. And once they felt like the, their idea had been captured, they were actually much more relaxed and much more open To what uh steven would say so i think he was the best example i've ever had of that but i've known a lot of people who are really quite good at it
0: you know when you you think about that concept um you know there's a great book by a the lead fbi hostage negotiator for the whole you know globally for the fbi chris voss wrote this book called never split the difference and he talks about that same idea of like listening to people completely fully and and it's funny the words you use, because he says that very same thing of repeating it back to them almost better than they could have said it themselves. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. When you think about, you know, whether it's with a business partner, a spouse, an employee, an investor, you know, having seen that done myself as well, it's interesting to me how someone who's excellent at that. It's almost like if they listen fully, they repeat it back so the person knows they were heard. It's almost like that person can then express a different point of view without getting that person's backup. Do you see that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can almost feel people relax once they feel heard. So It's so rare that we actually feel heard in our lives. We're trying to be heard and we're not. And so we feel frustrated all the time. Whereas if you actually run into somebody who who uh, empathizes who understands who wants to understand we could relax a bit and we're much more open to being influenced when that happens so
0: yeah what, what do you think that is because it's not like we don't like we still want what we want just as much as we did before they listened but you you're so right of once we feel fully heard we do become more influenceable um what do you think that's about Because we probably still want what we want as much, but all of a sudden we do become more influenceable, don't we?
1: Yeah, for sure that. But I think also we adjust sometimes what it is we want. We really understand that there are costs related to it. There are ways that we can generate uh, different uh, ways to look at the problem. We can create solutions that might be outside what it was we thought we wanted because we understand the costs. We understand that it's not all what we thought it was cracked up to be. And we we generate, we, we actually start to joint venture issues with parties who are counterparties, parties that we might have thought were our opponents, something we can actually recruit them to becoming our partners.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm interested in how, what this looks like at work. You know, I'm thinking about, um, I want to say, does JetBlue have like I want to say revenues of like above 7 billion and like 20,000 staff. Am I, am I way off on those numbers
1: or am I close? No, that's close. It's probably more like 24,000 uh, crew members, we call them. And uh, I think we're uh, well over 7 billion in revenues now.
0: Yeah. So you think about, you know, an organization with, with that much going on and, and um, there's so much that needs to get done and on deadlines um, what would you say to a leader who says like, oh, yeah, that's such you know, that's such a good point, Joel. I, I totally agree. I mean, usually I just need to get work done. And I don't have time to do that, but that's a good idea. What, what would you be response to someone like that?
1: Well, I think I would uh, I'd try to understand what the work was they had to get done. What are their priorities? If there are ways to help them get that done. You know, we all have priorities which really represent our values And I think people don't violate their values easily. So typically that means helping them get their priorities done. And often I find that if you just say, let's carve out some time to work on this other problem. I've found that uh, particularly at JetBlue, I've had to do a number of Saturday calls (laughs) in part because, um, you know, running the trains on time is sort of a full-time deal. And it really, you have to get people a bit offline. So you can kind of say, let's ventilate. The future. Let's look at what's going to happen a year from now. At what the market looks like. Uh, we also do uh, sort of annual offsites where the board will get together with the senior management team and we'll talk about what's going on in the industry. What would we, where would we like to be in a couple of years? Things that you don't do when you're just uh, managing the daily tasks to keep everything going.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um... You know, thinking of a, a, a different aspect of this respect thing, um, you know, an observation that I've made, and, and sometimes talking to different groups, I get a bit of like knowing chuckles from people is that sometimes it's almost like we can be disrespectful to our peers or disrespectful to our employees at a company in the name of serving the customer. Um, and yet it seems like it has such a negative effect on the environment, like, especially in healthcare. <laughs> Um, I'm sure other industries as well. it can almost be like sometimes you know patient care or sometimes customer service in other fields can almost become an excuse to mistreat a coworker, uh, even though it's probably not a valid one. Have you ever seen that, or do you have any thoughts on
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I think every business leader has to think about um, customers, about employees and about shareholders, and you're constantly balancing. Um The three, and you 're constantly making compromises. You can delight customers if you give everything away for free <laughs> it won 't make you popular with shareholders with <laughs> investors but uh, and so there 's a constant tension, and there should be that tension and I think the more that you recognize that these are trade offs and trade offs is the job of management making trade offs is the job of management, and that 's what you get paid for, and that 's what you do every day and so uh, I think if you ever let any one of those completely dominate another, you've actually uh, failed in the equation. You're optimizing. You're solving a linear program.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about, I want to say you guys have bought or invested in like 250 different companies between your investment funds. Is there anyone in that world that you feel like really stands out to you as, as doing that balance well? Well, I think there are
1: a lot of them. We We back tons of phenomenal young entrepreneurs. And typically, the way we choose who to back is more who they are than what their business plan is. Now, it has to reflect a market opportunity. There has to be white space in the market for them to uh, deliver some product or service that is needed. But really, uh, the businesses that work the best are the ones Uh, who do that well, who think about balancing all three of those needs. And so these are really talented young entrepreneurs who get it, who get the whole equation.
0: Yeah. Is there is there one that you can think of? Is there a story of somebody or is there an example of somebody that, you know, of of the many good ones that you can think of?
1: Well, I always think of uh, one of my favorites is uh, Andy Dunn at Bonobos, which is a men's pants uh, business that they sold men's pants over the Internet. And uh, they ultimately sold to Walmart, and they were very customer uh, focused. I mean, they had these uh, customer ninjas that would respond uh, to customers, but they also produced a high quality product. They got a good return to investors. Um, and so uh, Andy was a very talented um, entrepreneur. Now he's a talented executive at Walmart. <laughs>
0: And, and in a role like that, where do you feel like the temptation to have made a misstep would have been for Andy in a, in a situation like that? I think over
1: indexing on any one thing. I think a lot of times with in these young ventures, uh, you get investors who have a fund life and they're trying to maximize their return within a period of time. If they have five years left on the fund life, they'll try to get a capital event. Um, and sometimes that isn't really in the best interest of building a high-quality organization. In the end, I think what you're trying to do is build value over time for the customers through a great brand, uh, through your employees, through belonging to something that is doing something meaningful, and to your investors who are building uh, wealth over time. And you have to do all three of those. And you have to have the perspective on how to mix and match those appropriately. It's easy to say, hard to do. <laughs>
0: Sure. You know, I, I'm thinking about both of these principles. The, fir- the first two you brought up, both the integrity and the respect. And, you know, I think we'd be hard pressed to find any leader that doesn't claim to adhere to those. Right. You know, verbally. Um, but it seems like they really get tested in the hard times. You know, they get tested when, you know, the integrity one, when there's a ton of pressure and nobody's looking and it seems like you would never get caught or the respect one of like people are pretty good at respect unless, you know, tensions are high or emotions are high and there's a deadline. Any thoughts about those defining moments when it's not just
1: easy? Well, those are the moments when when it really becomes true and authentic or not. I mean, that's, those are in some ways the only moments that really matter. And, and you don't have – it's not authentic in those moments. It wasn't ever authentic. It was a technique. It was easy. Uh, it's easy to make nice and smile when everything's going right. When it's not, that's when I think it tests people and that's when you can tell. By the way, it's what gets people through those tough times too. If you don't have high trust, if you don't behave in that way when things aren't going well, you'll have a hard time getting your suppliers to, to continue to supply you, your employees to stay with you, your customers to stay with you, your landlords to work with you. I mean, you, you really need their help the most when you deserve it the least. And so if you haven't built that high trust, uh, showing respect and having integrity all the way along, um, you'll have a hard time.
0: Yeah. So when you think about um, creating habits to, to follow these principles in your book more or, or helping us like exercise the integrity muscle, exercise this respect muscle, you know, um, accountability, vision, the, the different things in here, Right. Um, what kind of advice do you have for those of us who, like, we, we hop on Amazon or we go to joelcpeterson.com and order the book, read it, and we're like, yep, that's what I got to do. When it comes down to getting the muscle memory for it, what, what kind of ideas do you have of, of uh, helping those of us who realize maybe these are, you know, some of these areas are, are areas we want to improve on?
1: You know, in the new version of the book, this is a republished version by HarperCollins, um, there is a diagnostic tool where you can ask 10 questions and measure the existing trust levels in your organization. Now your organization could be a family, an extended family, a church, a school, a business or whatever, but you you kind of take the measure of existing trust levels by applying the 10 laws to it and you come up with a number and then you measure it uh, over time and you say longitudinally, which direction are we going? And I think that gives you kind of a framework a discipline because it's really by violating these laws of trust if you're not uh, all on the same page if you're not negotiating in a win-win way if you're not managing respectful conflict if you don't have a a similar vision uh, that's where you're destroying trust and so I think by measuring along the way you can say this is where we're falling down and I think with data with information the thoughtful leader can then say you know what we need to really work on our communication We're not communicating lavishly. We're not communicating authentically. We're hiding the ball. We're spinning. We're um, communicating by rumor. We've got to fix that. It's
0: it's interesting how much as humans we aspire to what we measure, right? Like I'm thinking about I got my wife a Fitbit for Christmas one year. She wanted to track her sleeping. And uh, the next thing I know after dinner, she's like, honey, we got to go walk around the block. I almost have my steps I almost have enough steps, and I'm like, you don't even have a steps goal. But yeah. because it was being tracked, that because it was being measured, the aspiration kind of naturally comes. Uh, I can see, yep. I can see how repeatedly tracking, repeatedly assessing. Um, I guess my next question is, you know, somebody like me who I'm a real audiobook nerd. I've um, listened to, you know, I've been through maybe I don't know 500 business books in the last mm. 10 years, 12 years, and. Uh, I'd love to pat myself on the back for how far I've come on different things. Um, Any advice on, like, I'm guessing it would actually take a little extra humility to, you know, face the real numbers or to put the real numbers down instead of the numbers
1: I wish they were, you know, if I'm giving myself a zero to 10 on each of those. Yeah, I mean, I think people are surprised. And particularly the higher people get in organizations, the less feedback, honest feedback they get. They're being managed. Most leaders are being told what they want to be told. And I think to get a real raw number and say, oh, my gosh, and I agree with you. I think that's a, a a powerful insight that we do what is measured and we care about what is measured and we can improve based on what is measured. So unless we have a measurement, um, you know, and, and often that is just a specific time frame, a specific goal, sort of an on time, on budget, by by deliverable um, we, we don't, we don't, uh, achieve what it is we really wanted to achieve. And it remains in the category of a wish, not a goal. Uh, I'm a little like your wife in the, uh, in the Fitbit world. I, uh, I got one of these things and I remember getting up, uh, at night and getting my steps in. So I wouldn't fall my 10,000 steps short for the day. (laughs) It It was a tyranny. It just, it just kept me going. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I love it. Well, um, this is probably uh, this is probably a good place to end for part one of the interview. Everybody, please tune in to part two. We're going to keep asking Joel about his experiences and and lessons from the book. And um, Joel, besides the joelcpeterson.com, Peterson dot com, you know, I'm looking on LinkedIn. It looks like you've got almost half a million followers. Uh, or going to Amazon to buy the book are are those really the best places for people to connect or get a hold of the book? Or what what would you recommend?
1: I think so. I think that's really the best spot. That's great.
0: Okay, everyone, please uh please tune back in for more. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run, and it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think Now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.